Hope you'll not have any problem finding my text. It's in Genesis. If you can count to two, we can see in the 17th verse. I want this church to know Marsha and I were honored and humbled. Somebody called this week and they said, what's going on? Marsha said, well, the church gave Steve a pounding. <laughs> and I think the other one's about to <clears throat> You know, I'm from a different deck of the woods and when I heard about getting a pounding, <laughs> look out. What I do? I'll do it again. <clears throat> But this is a good thing. God bless you, good people. You know, uh, we can always pay on the groceries. And some of, us, some of you gave us some greens so that uh, we can get some other groceries. And uh, thank you. Thank you. We are touched. I was taught early on never to forget a cup. So if I thank you two or six or 19 times for a thing, <clears throat> that's that just me, okay? I don't ever want to be ungrateful. And none of us should ever, we can't afford to be ungrateful to our great God from whom comes every blessing. James 1 says, Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of life. You don't get any good stuff from the devil. You really don't get anything good from this world. You don't get anything good from the flesh. Our great God, He knows what we need. Sometimes we think we want, we need something. And the Lord knows best. In the second chapter of Genesis, we have God's Word Speaking to Adam. And he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is God gave good gifts, beautiful things to see, beautiful things to hear, beautiful things to smell, to touch, and to taste. But God said, You got a rule. There is a tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. That shouldn't be too much of a challenge. No, it shouldn't. But that's what God said. Thou shalt not eat of it. That was not a recommendation. That was a command. No ifs, ands, or buts. And there's a consequence for eating that forbidden fruit. It is a very serious consequence. It affects every one of us. From the time you were born, you came in this world demonstrating the fact that our first father, Adam, did indeed eat of that 
fruit. I can't make it more hideous, more disastrous than what it is. And I wouldn't want to. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Some of you aren't old enough to remember old Bing Crosby, but he used to say, no doubt about it. It's a sure thing. Sure is sure to be. Now that's exactly what God told Abraham. Adam, there in Genesis chapter 2. And in the very next chapter of Genesis, it tells us that the serpent came along. And the serpent said, Go ahead. Go ahead. And Eve took up a fruit and ate it and gave it to him. And he did indeed eat. And he died. What does that mean? I think sometimes we we like to substitute words. There's a there's a term the world likes to introduce. The word is euphemism. It's a word that doesn't have quite as much punch. When a man is accused of having an affair, you know he's, he's committed adultery. He's sinned against God. We talk about people who have an alternative lifestyle. It's a death style. It's abomination to God. We need to call sin what it really is. Rebellion against God. We're trying to be God. But <clears throat> Interestingly, the devil even puts some truth in his lure to Eve. He says, God knows the day you eat this up, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Yeah, they found out what evil was. Like a person who's had a broken leg knows what it's like to have a broken leg. I would much rather know what it is to have a broken leg by reading about it in a book. Or talking about it with others. I would rather not have to experience that my hand, my, myself firsthand. And sometimes theologians, they, they don't want to talk in blunt terms. And so they said, well, what Adam did, he fell. And even very conscientious people have a tendency, and I find this in theological writings all the time, because of the fall. I think sometimes people are like, oh, the fall? I guess Adam stubbed his toe. Adam just fell down a little bit. No. God didn't say you're going to fall, Adam. He didn't say you're going to have an owie. He didn't say you're going to have a little bump in the road. No. You will die. But we read that and we think, what does that mean? He's going to die. Well, let's be clear. Obviously, he did not physically die that day. In fact, in the third chapter after he had partaken of the fruit, God said something to say to the snake. And he had something to say to the woman. 
<clears throat> but if you look in that third chapter, verses 17 through 19, God is not talking to a corpse. He's talking to a man who still has physical life. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I command thee, say, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. You fellows who grow crops, you fellows who are out in the field and you have to plant the seed and you have to deal with the weeds and you're afraid for the rain and you try to get rid of the bugs. And it's, it is by the sweat of your breath. Now you can thank Mr. Adam. The Lord made it clear, curse is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Mr. Adam, I'm talking to you. He says, till thou return unto the ground. Adam was literally formed from the elements in the ground. That's why we say ashes to ashes dust to dust. For out of it wast thou taken, for just thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. <clears throat> so when God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He did die. A very real death. But it wasn't physical death. He was still alive in the next chapter, as we just read here. And how long did he live? Well, chapter 5, verse 5, tells us all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's a long time. I don't think any of you have lived that long. And I don't think any of us could realistically hope in this world with these bodies to live 930 years. I think it'd be a rare person indeed who lives 130 years. And that's 800 shy of what God has mentioned here. He was dying, says the appointed of it wants to die. It's a for sure thing. One of my friends in Conway used to start his health classes every semester and say, I'm going to give you a statistic. One in one. Those are the odds you will die. Maybe not today. Maybe not this year. Maybe not this decade. I have reason to believe probably this century. But it's appointed that we die. Short of the Lord's return, there will be some alive when he returns. But short of that, we're going to go that way after where a body goes this way. That is just a fact that we need to face. No matter how many life you squeeze into years and how many years you squeeze into your life, sooner or later you'll reach that final day you die physically. But I want to talk this morning not about the physical death of Adam, perhaps surrounded by you imagine how large that funeral was? A funeral with I mean, every human 
on the planet was descended from Adam. Big crowd. You, you can generate a lot of folks in 930 years. <clears throat> he was gone. But I want you to know that the death that he suffered was even more tragic than physical death. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I've been to several funerals. I've been to the first funeral I attended. I was about a age. And I thought it was straight people laughing and cutting up and, and talking about all kinds of things. Uh, that's very inappropriate. I've come to learn that everybody grieves in their own way. But I do know this. You can have the world seemingly drop out from under your feet. You can feel like you've come to the end of your rope and you have no more hope, but yet life goes on. But there is a second death. Sad to say, the great majority of the human race will inevitably suffer that second death. Because we're not talking about the sort of death that maybe great-great-grandpa and maybe grandma and maybe mom or dad, maybe brother or sister, maybe child or spouse. We're talking about a spiritual death. Adam died that way. So, if you're reading along sometime and it says, well, you know, first there was the creation and then there was the fall. That's just man's way of trying to soften the brutal fact of the fact that Adam died. And we were born spiritually in that state. Back in the 17th century, a man named Thomas Boston wrote a book. It's a classic. Mankind fourfold state because Adam experienced a sinless condition I don't know how long it was it might have just been a day it might have been several days or even longer I don't know but as God promised Genesis 2.17 as we read what happened in Genesis 3 he died that day he died spiritually Fallen man, we say, actually spiritually dead man. And that's one of the things that will differentiate us with a lot of people because when you talk to, about, talk to people about their spiritual condition, they'll say, oh, it's kind of rugged. There was a grace man who was once challenged by a, a fellow on the other side of the aisle, and he said, sir, I would like to just begin with a question. Is man spiritually dead? And the response, well, he, he's sick. No, is he dead? Well, he's weak. Is he dead? He's in a bad way. Is he dead? Because once we admit that man is dead in trespasses and sins, what could a dead man do? That's, that's just the, the cold, hard fact, the reality there. And when Adam sinned, God kept his word. I think sometimes people think, well, God didn't really mean that. Oh, absolutely he did. Uh, one of Marcia, my 
pet peeve. We watch uh, the Ten Commandments with old Charlton Hester playing Moses. What's that spooky, ooky thing? That's the death angel. How come you don't read about the death angel in the Bible? Because God didn't say, when I see the blood, I'll see to it that the death angel passes over. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. We don't, oh, I think about God killing people, do we? But God gave his word, and he never makes an empty threat. It is a promise. And Adam found out the hard way. And all of his posterity since then. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 64, verse 6. That as unclean rags, all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. See, the problem is not just the bad stuff we do. Because we have ways of, well, I do some good stuff and I do some bad stuff. The Egyptians in this great scale. And in the end, you put all your bad deeds here and your good deeds here and oh, looks like you won't make it because there's more good deeds than bad. That's what a lot of people really are hoping for. Yeah, I did some really nasty, naughty things, but once in a while, I was a pretty good guy. God's going to look at me and say, dude, everybody makes mistakes. That's what this world will tell you. That's what Satan will whisper in your ear. That's what the flesh wants to believe. Why so-and-so is a hypocrite. Why some of those church people, they're sinners. I know about other churches, but I think this is one church when we've been accused of being sinners. Absolutely. That's one reason why we love Christ so much. He died for sinners. We'd be lying He's so dishonest with ourselves and with God if we were to say, well, you know, we're, we're really pretty fine folks. When I when I became a Christian, I just I just made a good thing better. It's an upgrade, so to speak. Like they had in some of the fast food, I'm going to supersize. No. Doesn't work that way. And yet we take our good deeds. And we try to present them before God. As I said, that 64th of Isaiah. We take the things that we're proudest of. Look, God, here are my good deeds. Here are the accolades I've received from others. Everybody knows heaven wouldn't be heaven without me. Now I'm just going to put it right up here if you see it. And you'd be better off taking filthy, nasty, stinky rags and shoving them in somebody's face and Asking them to give you a good commendation as a result. No. It's in the first chapter of Isaiah that God used that prophet to tell the people, get real. You go through the motions. You show up for worship. And you say your prayers. And you bring your offerings. And you put on a good show for other people. You know what God says in the vernacular? I'm sick and tired of all this stuff. Because the problem is not that you're going through the motions. That, the problem is you're going through the motions without the heart. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? The difference between an intellectual faith in a God and to be touched in your heart. they touched here, but it doesn't get down here. That's the problem. 
You can go to church. You can get gold stars in Sunday school. And you can sit and, and uh, say amen to the preacher. You can do anything and everything you can to be a good old junk. Good old Sally Sue or whatever. And a lot of people say, well, if anybody's a good Christian, it's you. It's not the deeds that we do that make us a Christian. If you're a true Christian, you're going to do the deeds because that's the natural result. If Marsha puts a tree out there, and I, say, I think that's an apple tree. Well, actually, no, it's not. Well, let's just see what kind of fruit it provides. The fruit lets you know what the real thing is. And I don't think a tree has to but try real hard. I think I can. Some apples will pop out. No, it doesn't happen. It's a natural consequence of what the tree is. And so when we see or hear a child of God behaving like a child of God, way to go. Don't ever get the idea you do good works in order to be saved. You do good works because you have been saved. In Romans chapter 8, it says that the flesh cannot please God. It can do no good thing, it says in verse 8. And, and what exactly does that mean? Can't do well. Well, I don't. Well, they're good scouts, you know, and, and and they're kind and they do good deeds. Listen, I don't want to tell people don't do good deeds, but for what reason? When you look at the scripture, it's very eye-opening to realize that God sees not just the hand and hear the voice; He knows the mind. He knows the heart. Maybe these are familiar with you, maybe not. But let me show you first of all in Psalm 109. Even the things that we think are going to really make us look good. You know, if you're looking for a job and you compile your resume, or as some folks say, your curriculum, you want to list all the good stuff. You don't want to tell about the time you got picked up for shoplifting. You don't talk about the time you cheated on a spelling test. You want to talk about the time you did some nasty stuff. And I better stop because sometimes I'll start listing things and some people go, how do you know I did that? <laughs> Sooner or later, you mention bad stuff and it's going to touch you, it's going to touch me. But we are guilty as charged. Psalm 109, verse 7. When he shall be judged, let's talk about the heathen. He let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. You know what the world says? Listen, if you feel bad, just pray. Just pray. Prayer will put you back on the right track with God. If your mind, if your heart, if your spirit is the Lord's, I pray that the Lord will move you to pray. But if you're unregenerate, if you have that foul mind, that dark heart, that spirit that is in rebellion against God. Even your prayer is sin. Wow! I never heard well maybe I've been going to the right place to hear that. Because it's so true. Even your prayer 
is sin. Go to the book of Proverbs with me, please. Chapter 15. It comes up pretty clear in God's Word. It seems strangely strange to a lot of people because they've observed the Passover about these. Verse 8 of Proverbs 15, the first part of the verse is, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That stinks, God says. Abel came before God with the blood of the Lamb. And God was pleased to accept that. Cain, out of his fruits, vegetables, nuts, berries, whatever he brought, he brought it before God. And God says, unacceptable. When I was in Navy school, you knew you flunked when they said, unsat. We are unsat, spiritually speaking. Even their sacrifice, well, they sacrifice so much. If their heart is wrong, the problem is not with what you bring, it's why you bring it. It's what you're expecting as a result. Proverbs 21, verse 4, there are three things that are mentioned here. And high look, the person who's so full of himself. That's one reason I kind of like the word suspenders, you And I'm like, look at me, I did it again. You are the one. I am so good. Look at me. I had some kids when I was teaching public school. If I got a new shirt, ooh, Mr. Ray, you're clean today. Well, I hope so. They didn't mean I'd take a bath. Looking good, looking good. And a high look and a proud heart. And you say, well, I can understand that. And the plowing of the wicked is sin. You see a guy out at work in his field plowing? And you might say, the Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin. Who are you to create? Why he's working hard out there? He's sweating away. He's putting in his time. He can feel it in his bones. Folks, it's not the fact that he's plowing that's the sin. The problem is he's wicked. You take Limburger cheese and wipe it on your upper lip, the world's going to stink. You know why? Because that Limburger cheese. The world has its various aromas and odors. But the Limburger cheese just negates the whole thing, makes it all to stink. So the plowing of the wicked is said, not because it's wrong to plow, but it's wrong to be one of the wicked. Look also in verse 27 of this 21st chapter. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. Suppose somebody came and said, I want to give a gazillion dollars to this church. Somebody says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, the preacher loves any kind of giver. But the point is, sometimes people think they can buy off God. They can think they can buy off God's people. They can cover it up with money. No. They sacrifice, but because they are the wicked, what they do is with the wrong mind, the wrong heart, the wrong direction, the wrong motive. And that's why God calls it abomination. Watch out. Guard your heart. That's even more important than the stuff you might have in the bridge. And in the 28th of Proverbs, look at verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law 
Even his prayer shall be abomination. I know I messed up, but I'm going to say a little prayer. There was a song, I don't know if it's as popular today as it used to be, but in some circles, which I moved, I hear there's a, you know, just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Well, let me tell you what. If your mind, if your heart, if your spirit is done on the same, same wavelength with the Lord, then your prayer is just as ineffective as the guy that spins that little prayer wheel. That's all. How did that get into a so-called Christian song anyway? That's something they do in the heathen land. Well, instead of saying a prayer, but okay, that counts as a prayer. But you can say if anything you want. Doesn't make it so. Abomination. You're not making anything better. You're making it worse as a result. And so, an immediate death. Adam did not physically die. He didn't drop dead as soon as he ate that fruit. He was a living, breathing human being, fathered offspring, ever to one of us. Because of Adam, we exist because he fathered sons and daughters. And they in turn fathered children. And they in turn fathered children. And as many generations as have passed since then, we all ultimately trail back to Adam. We all sprang from him. We are definitely his offspring. But by his dying, he was separate from God. No more communion. No more access to him that he was pleased. And so today, your only hope of having access to God. You don't go through Adam's. As godly as your parents may have been, and I take nothing away from that, they weren't good enough to save you. Grandma and Grandpa might have been godly people. They weren't good enough to save you. Well, I'm a murderer. I believe in great people like George Washington. George Washington could not if he would and would not if he could save you. I think he understood something about the grace of God and how that our hope is only in the person and work of Christ. I won't take the time, but I hope you're familiar with what it says in Romans chapter 3. There's a long chunk there. And it begins with what it says in Isaiah 14 that the, the, the fool, he says in his heart, there's no God. And it talks about the fact in his mind, in his heart, in his will, in all of his way. He is taken up with this. Foolish thing to dismiss God. And yet the 10th Psalm tells us famously of the wicked. God is not in all his thoughts. I think that's a pretty clear indication that God ought to be in our thoughts. What does God say about this? We want to listen to so-and-so. We want to take advice from this one. We want to think about what other people will react. What will be their take on this? Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear that Adam died. And that death is passed upon all men. Because of this great loss of spiritual life, Men come to this world dead in trespasses and sins. I hope you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
so special to us, especially because what it says in the first verse of that chapter. You have to be quickened. You see, before the Lord saved you, you weren't just weak. You weren't just wimpy. You weren't just distracted. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And God gave life to you. What He did for Lazarus in a physical sense, He did for us in a spiritual sense. Only a fool would think that Jesus stood outside the grave of Lazarus and said, Now Lazarus, that's all I can do. And it's really a shame. But, but let's have a little choir. Let's sing a song. Maybe you'll come out of the grave. You sisters, start blowing away. Let Lazarus know how much you miss him. Angels look down upon us. Let's all think happy thoughts about Lazarus. No. When he called him by name, Lazarus came forth. Now my faith is such that if there were 25 other people in that grave, sometimes that happened back then, had Jesus said, come forth, there would have been 26 folks coming out of that grave. But our God doesn't save with a shotgun blast. It's a rifle shot. Uh, I had a son-in-law that shot Bambi today. He told Marsha about it. I think it was a, for those of you that care about things like that, six pointers. So I thought deer only had four legs, but he had six points. Some of you know what that means better than I do. But uh, I'm venturing five points. But, so. but he shot this thing, and it was, he didn't say, let me just get out of here, and I'll take a blast in the whole forest, and maybe something will drop dead. No. He got that thing in the crosshairs, and kaboom, and Mr. Bambi became Mr. Dinner. He's graveyard dead. And I want you to know when the Lord targets one, when the Lord speaks to one, when the Lord says, I have someone in such and such a place. That's what Jesus said about Lazarus. He said, let's go down to Bethany. I got an idea. I got a feeling that there might be some lost people down there. Maybe we can do it now there and, and say some magic words or or put on a show, or, or maybe there's somebody out there. No. He didn't stay in that gravesite. If there's anybody out there that would like to come back from the dead, I'm here. You make the first step. And he didn't say that now, did he? He said, Lazarus, come forth. And there were no ifs, ands, or buts. Even though he was bound up like a mummy, he came out. That's why Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Get those winding sheets, those death rags off of him. He doesn't belong wearing those things anymore. He needs to be in the land of the living. 2 Timothy 2.26 talks about those who are taken captive by Satan. And he's going, you know why? I know there are a lot of stories, but look out. He might, the devil might get you. He might, you might hit that. Give your soul or sell your soul to the devil. Now that's that's cheap literature because he's already got it. Unless you're one of the Lords. But you didn't show anything on the outside. Before the Lord saved you, you were just as depraved as anybody else. So was I. I was a stinker. I'd rather not tell you some examples, but 
I was a stinker. I'll make you a deal. I won't tell you some of the stinker stuff I did. You don't tell me some of the stinker stuff that you did. But uh, we're all guilty. We really are. And God saved us anyway. Not because of any good deeds that we've done, but because of His great love. Now, what are the consequences of these consequences, this situation? Well, man has no hope of himself. From the womb, the psalmist says, Psalm 58, that the wicked come forth as soon as they be born speaking lies. Jeremiah asks a couple of rhetorical questions in the 13th chapter. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? You say, absolutely not! But just the same way, you who are evil, you're accustomed to do evil. That is your standard operating procedure. Also in the 17th of Jeremiah, it says that the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. You're not just casually wicked. Your natural man is such, you just got to see it. I think in our culture today, the best example of that is the junkie who puts something in his veins and he turns into a wild man. Especially, you know, certain times of the year, people are just going to get wild and crazy. People say, well, it's the drugs. It's the situation. They want to blame society. They want to blame the parents. They want to blame the schools. The problem is within man. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Men are rebels against God. And as the Proverbs also says, all them that hate me love death. Spiritually speaking, they have a death wish. So man has no hope in and of himself. And even if he does, he would despise God. He doesn't want the God of this book. He doesn't want the God that says... You can't save yourself. You won't save yourself. It'll never happen except you come to see your great need for mercy and your great hope for grace. So he doesn't. If a man is to be saved, and by man I mean man, woman, boy or girl, it's God who goes to the man. The Lord did not say, now down in Bethany we got this fellow Lazarus. Now if he really wants to be saved, let him come out of the grave and he come to us. And... Yeah, I'd be impressed with that. I think a lot of people would pretty spooked if Lazarus came out of the grave. But he did come out of the grave, but only when Jesus was there and only when Jesus called him by name. And when he came forth. See, that stone was rolled away not to let them in, but so that Lazarus could come that's what our great God does. If you're here this morning and you are not one who knows the saving grace of Jesus Christ, you might be polite. You might be kind to this preacher. <coughs> shake my hand on the way out or whatever. But that was the same way before the Lord saved me. I hated to hear that kind of stuff. I want to think, I'll just be good. If I'm good enough and I'll get my little halo and I'll get my wings and boy, that'll be wonderful, won't it? 
And uh, it's interesting how many people, in the name of spirituality, they just have the old-fashioned idea of save yourself by your works. But the very words that I speak to you, the Lord does not touch your mind, your heart, your spirit. They will come back to haunt you. They will. Not because I said them, but because God says it in word. I'm just his spokesman, his errand boy, if you will. I'm telling you what God has said. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament and the burden of the Lord came to me. They told people what God had said. And a lot of them got mad. A lot of them said, I don't want to listen to this. You can tune me out. If I'm on sermon audio and you're listening, and I'm glad for those that do, and you say, how did they die? Went to church once with this lady who actually <laughs> giving me a ride. On the way home, she said, I like that church. He talks too much about the wrath of God. Well, all you talk about is God being a big softie. And although it makes you sad to see the way we live, He'll always say, I forgive. Seems to me I heard that. Yeah, you heard that in one of man's songs, but God makes it very clear in so many ways that rebels against God. You're a rebel against God? You might live that way, and you might say, I did it my way. Well, you come to the end of life, you won't have your way anymore. It won't be having it your way, Burger King style. No. It will be a realization that you come to the end. I don't know if Dante was a Christian, but he did in his discussion of hell. He had a sign over the front. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. There is hope now. There is the possibility. That's why the scriptures tell us that we are to tell folks, command all men to repent. We lift up Christ. I can't save you. This church can't save you. We had a baptism a couple of weeks ago. A wonderful demonstration and declaration, but baptism doesn't save you. Anybody goes in that tank, preacher or baptizee, if they're not saved, they come out, the only difference is they dry out the clothes. It's only on the outside. No, may the Lord do a work in your hearts. May He give you the eyes to see and the ears to hear. That is our hope. That is our prayer. I'm thankful that we have a congregation of people here. There just might be someone who doesn't know the Lord in a saving way. You say, well, I go to church. I'm here a lot of times. I do a lot of good stuff during the week. And, and you begrudging you doing those things, but if your mind is wrong, your heart is wrong, you're moving in the wrong direction. No matter how sincere you may be, no matter how many analogs you might have had from others, it's Jesus Christ. That's why we sing songs that say, it's Jesus Christ who paid it all. All to Him I owe. Can we see that? Can we sing along those lines? Brother?